Well, I am not known for always preaching sermons that have to do with a particular day, whether it's Memorial Day or Labor Day or any other kind of day. That hesitancy that I have also applies to what really are family holidays, not really church calendar holidays, but family holidays like Mother's Day and today, Father's Day. There's certainly nothing wrong with acknowledging those days as a church, and there's nothing wrong with breaking from a series you're in to preach a sermon associated with those days. I'm just saying I've not really known for habitually doing that every year. But today, I am going to do that. I am still pausing our study in the Gospel of John here on Sunday mornings until next Sunday when we will pick back up on that study of John. I'm pausing again to share some recent thoughts that I have had. A few weeks ago, I was mulling over what is basically the bottom line when it comes to being a godly father. And to extrapolate that out a little more broadly, the bottom line of what it means to be a godly husband or a godly leader, in other words, the key to being a good father or a good husband or a good leader in the home and in the church is, first of all, this, the key is simply being a godly man. That's what a Christian wife needs most from her husband. It's what children need from their father. It's what the church needs the most from its leaders, frankly. It's what our nation needs in leaders as well. In the home and in the church and in the world, we need godly men. Now, there are several facets to what constitutes godliness, of course, but today I want to focus on something I have been thinking about the last month or so, and that is the reality that a godly man is one who takes personal holiness seriously. And that means a man who takes his battle with sin seriously. You cannot be a godly man without persevering in the daily, hourly battle against the flesh. The flesh is our unredeemed humanness. Even though we come to faith in Christ, we carry with us until we die what the Bible refers to as the flesh or Paul refers to as the principle of indwelling sin. We cannot be a godly man without persevering in the battle against that flesh. Now, obviously, godly women need to be concerned about the same thing. I do believe in those two categories. There are men and women. I do know how to define those in case the news or the government ever calls me looking for a definition. I keep waiting. They have not called. I'm just saying that, ladies, you are more than welcome today to listen in to what I'm saying to the men, because what I'm saying ultimately applies to all believers. Now, this will be a topical study today, not my normal exposition of a paragraph or passage of Scripture. We're going to be looking at several verses in this topical study But from these various verses, we can create what I'm just calling an overview, a summary of a battle plan 
for dealing biblically with temptation and sin so that we are growing in personal holiness. A topical sermon, really, it's a seminar. And to help us remember the biblical counsel that I believe we will find, I'm using seven terms that all begin with the letter R. These terms are the keys to experiencing consistent victory over sin, and therefore they are the keys to being a godly man. As your bulletin says, this sermon is entitled, The Seven R's of Personal Holiness. Once I was almost completed with the sermon, I kept thinking of more, like an eighth and a ninth and a tenth, but I had to stop doing that. So we'll leave it at seven. There may be other thoughts, but these thoughts are certainly non-negotiable in a great sense. The seven R's of personal holiness. Here's number one, recognize, recognize. Now, the question immediately begged in this seminar this morning is, recognize what? Well, I'm referring to recognizing what could be what we tend to call your besetting sin or besetting sins. We get that idea of besetting sin from Hebrews chapter 12. So there's the first passage we will look at this morning, Hebrews 12. In those first three verses of Hebrews 12, I'll just read an excerpt from that. It says this, Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The imagery of a race there is referring to the Christian life, running effectively for the Lord, living our lives as godly people for the Lord. That's a better translation, what I read, sin that easily entangles us, or you could say sin that tends to cling to us, that's a better translation than the old besetting sin. But regardless, the idea and the command is that we are to regularly look around and and take inventory of our lives and our situations with an eye out for something, any hindrances to effectively living for Christ as a godly person. It does include laying aside every encumbrance, he said, that term encumbrance I'll just briefly comment on. It denotes any kind of weight or burden. It can refer to things that may not be sinful in and of themselves, but which still could prevent uh, the progress that ought to be occurring in in our lives. Even good things, in other words, can sometimes end up being distractions to us in following the Lord. But even more important than encumbrances, it says there in our passage, we must lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us. Now, grammatically, this refers to any sin, any sin at all at any given time that may easily entangle us or that can possibly cling to us is the idea. So this is a daily need to recognize how easily we could get caught up in some sin. And it's all for the purpose of being able to run the race that is before us, or to put it in other terms, it's all for the purpose of being a godly man. Now, a caution. Be biblical in what you do call sin. As you know, we each have a conscience 
The conscience is that built-in guard, or we could call it a, a warning light on your dashboard, that helps us to be aware of something wrong. It helps us be aware of the presence of sin. But some people have a conscience that is not truly and accurately trained by Scripture. This can be called an overactive conscience or even a prohibitive conscience. This person with an overactive or prohibitive conscience tends to believe that some desire or some thought or some course of action is morally wrong when the Bible does not clearly say that or does not actually condemn it. If this is you, then yes, according to Romans chapter 14, you are required to personally act out of or according to your conscience. Though you are forbidden in Romans 14 from judging others based upon your own personal conscience, you're forbidden from binding others to your own conscience, but you should also be seeking to always be retraining your conscience according to an accurate understanding of biblical standards. So then, with a biblically trained conscience, we can and we must seek to recognize potential sin in our lives. Now, even though any sins can cling to you at any given time, no doubt, if you are seeking on a regular basis to be alert and to recognize the truth about the daily battle with sin, you may obviously be aware that there is one particular sin or two sins that seem to cause your biggest struggle in your pursuit of godliness. So the next term provides a crucial companion to recognizing potential sin. Number two, renounce. Renounce. In other words, that sin that you recognize, that you regularly struggle against, is to be renounced. I cannot overemphasize how important this element is. I am convinced from ministering to others and from evaluating my own walk with the Lord through the years that this is many times the missing element in someone's struggle with sin. It's the key term that caused me to think about all that I'm saying today. It started with this term, renounce, as I began to ponder it. And then once I got down that path, I realized it started with R, and so all the others had to start with R too. That's a different issue. This idea is captured in this term renounce. It's captured in what we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. So here's our second passage, 2 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. Here's what it says. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. Just a brief statement about that last part craftiness and adulterating the Word of God, those were the shameful things going on in the false teachers that Paul was having to to deal with. 
But he begins with the word therefore. That term therefore points back to what he's been discussing in chapter 3, which is his new life in Christ, life under the new covenant. God had been merciful to Paul, he says, because of Christ. And not only that, God even called Paul into gospel ministry. And the apostle found continued strength in the Lord that kept him from, he says, losing heart as he served. Serving the Lord is a challenge. There are struggles involved. So he says, I I have drawn strength from the Lord so I don't lose heart. That term, lose heart, can mean to give in to fear. It can mean to behave like a coward or to shrink back in some way. So Paul says his courage to keep on in the ministry and serving the Lord came from the confident knowledge that God had sovereignly been merciful to him and saved him. But coming to find mercy in Christ, which means being saved from your sin, was something also purifying in his life. It was accompanied by something, he says, renouncing the things hidden because of shame. That word renounce is found only here in Scripture, and it means to disown or to literally turn your back on something. And the term shame is describing something disgraceful, dishonorable, deeds and thoughts that would produce embarrassment and humiliation. Listen, any sin should be considered to be that, shameful, disgraceful. And of course, we know that shameful deeds come from a sinful, deceitful heart. So Paul wrote that when he came to Christ, there was this renouncing that took place, the things that are the shameful things that people would tend to want to hide. He so despised sin because what had God had done in his life that with all seriousness of his heart, he committed to putting shameful deeds of his past, he committed to put them in his past and leaving them there and living in victory over whatever it might be. So yes, there is a degree of this renouncing sin that happens at conversion. In other words, coming to salvation in Christ is not some shallow sort of making a decision for the Lord or walking down an aisle and signing a card. When God does a work in our hearts, it's a work of, of regeneration, new life, and he, and he gives us faith to believe, and He gives us this understanding of who God is. It's not perfect, but we understand He's God and we are not. Jesus is Lord, and we must serve Him and follow Him as the Lord of our lives and submit to Him. When we came to understand who God is and what His holy law demands and the provision of salvation in Christ, we in faith turned from our sin, and devoted ourselves to following Christ, which includes then the pursuit of godliness all of our lives. But as we live our lives following Christ, and as we stay alert to the sins that contend to cling to us, it is crucial that we revisit this renouncing. In other words, once we recognize what the struggle is that we we have the most, what we struggle with the most. I'm just counseling all of us today, we should go before the Lord and say something like this, Father, I know when you saved me, 
I renounced my life of sin and committed myself to following Jesus. But as I have followed him, I have recognized, I have realized that the flesh remains, and I have learned that I even continually to struggle with this particular sin, and name what it is. So, Father, with a fresh awareness of the danger of this sin, with all my heart, I renounce it. I commit to you that this shameful thing is something that I am not going to allow to cling to me. As I've already said, I have come to believe that this element of fighting sin, renouncing, is the missing ingredient in many Christians' lives. I'm talking about a crisis moment even, a moment of seriousness like no other. The problem is people instead of seriously renouncing the sin that clings, people give only lip service to despising it. They even end up nourishing it in some way, the pet sin. They give it opportunity or they just play with attempts to defeat it. But I'm promising you, without a crisis moment of renouncing it, there is no real hope of experiencing any consistent level of victory over a besetting sin. Well, with that renouncing in place, this third ingredient then is important. Resolve. Resolve. To live out the renouncing requires ongoing resolve on our part. More specifically, the resolve to exercise self-control. Self-control is obviously necessary in the moments of temptation to resist temptation. So essentially, that's what self-control is. It's the resolved refusal to give indwelling sin the upper hand. Now, to clarify something, and we must always clarify this, anytime we talk about submitting to Christ and being obedient and so forth, let me clarify, resisting temptation is not something required to earn salvation. In other words, self-control is not the gospel. There is nothing we must do to merit salvation. Instead, we rejoice in the fact that instead of something that we need to do to get God to accept us, we rejoice in the fact that the gospel is fundamentally about what Christ did already. He lived the perfect life of renouncing sin and being obedient to God's law. He did that in our place, something we could never do on our own. He went to the cross and died for the sins that we have committed. The sins of his people, all their sins, past, present, and future. He died for the sins of all those who would turn and trust in him. And those who trust in him receive his Holy Spirit to indwell them. And it's the spirit that produces what Scripture calls spiritual fruit. We find that in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the spirit. I'll read just a portion of that. Galatians 5. Here are the pieces of the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It is a gift of God by His Spirit 
And we praise God for that truth, but though we praise God for this truth, it must not be used to deny our responsibility to resolve to fight sin daily the rest of our lives. True believers are marked by this, by this resolve to exercise self-control. In fact, Peter tells us it is this resolve to exercise self-control, this self-control that we're adding to our lives that actually flows out of our faith. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. He says, apply with all diligence. In your faith, your saving faith, which is a gift from God, apply to that moral excellence. Supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, supply self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. So yes, on one hand, Self-control is a gift, it's the fruit of the Spirit, but it's also a command, a command that we be resolved to fight temptation. We're fighting the flesh, and the desires of the flesh don't go down without a fight. We must exercise self-control to fight them. So what happens when we give in to temptation? I'll put it bluntly. We're actually taking the easy way out. It's the path of least resistance. But to have self-control is to resolve to fight the temptation and to put the deeds of the flesh to death, not just one day, but every day, not just one hour, but every hour. And there are some who would hear something like this and go, boy, this is sounding a whole lot like legalism. It's not legalism. Listen, we follow Christ out of love for him and his love for us. But he himself is the one that's constantly working on our hearts and reshaping our hearts and our will. Listen to a couple of verses in that regard. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. He establishes, it says, your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father. He does that. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 17. He strengthens your hearts in every good work and word. We come to Christ. He doesn't abandon us. He walks with us. He strengthens the will of our hearts so that we have resolve when called for to fight the battle against temptation. Yet sometimes we do fail, and therefore the next ingredient is important. Number four, repent. Repent. See, the initial renouncing, even, when we come to Christ, doesn't mean that Christians never sin again. In fact, that was true of Paul. He would tell you that, his renouncing of the shameful things that characterize his life. It didn't mean that he never sinned. It does mean, though, that when he sinned, he kept short accounts. So it means for us the same things. When we sin, we, we must keep short accounts. That's what's required of us, keeping short accounts of our moments of failure and sin through ongoing repentance. Now, the word repent conjures up this idea, and rightly so, of turning or changing, and it is rightly illustrated in the idea of a person maybe who's walking on one way, and we say they do a 180, and and they head in the opposite direction. So repentance 
is captured in that idea, and repentance is actually an element of conversion. It's part of that that gift that God gives us, faith and repentance. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. He talks about godly sorrow there, that when it's of God, true sorrow, according to the will of God, 2 Corinthians 7, 10 says it, repu- it produces a repentance that leads to salvation. So repentance is part of our coming to Christ, but repentance remains continually necessary after conversion. You see a picture of that in Psalm 51. David writing this psalm of repentance. David was a man of the covenant. David was a saved man, we would say, and yet he had failed, and so he expresses repentance in Psalm 51. So let me just tell you what true repentance, what it's, what it's made up of. True repentance has these, these four ingredients in it. The first one is comprehension, comprehension. You see, the Greek word translated repentance, it's two words put together, a prefix, meta, and then noia. Noia from a word that means the mind, to think. Meta means to change. Repentance in its bare definition is a change of thinking, a 180-degree change of thinking. When there's true repentance, we're experiencing this change of thinking about the sin, We are no longer minimizing it and rationalizing it and blame-shifting it, but we're seeing it the way God sees it, and we're defining it the way God defines it. We see it not as something beneficial at all. We see it as something shameful. Metanoia, repentance, has that kind of comprehension. If it's true repentance, it has this ingredient, conviction, conviction. I read from 2 Corinthians earlier this idea of godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is not the same thing as being sorry. Godly sorrow is not feeling sorry that you've gotten caught or sorrow over just consequences alone or sorry it's hurt somebody else. No, godly sorrow is your understanding that you're grieving the Lord. And in that psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, David expressed that. Listen, Psalm 51, 3 and 4. I know, he's writing to God, I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you, God, are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. He got it. It was true repentance because he had true conviction in his heart. If it's true repentance, then there's going to be confession. Confession. But true confession. Real confession. The term confession is homilageo, and that's two ideas put together. It means to speak or to say the same. When you confess, you are saying the same thing that God says about it. Again, no minimizing, no rationalizing, no redefining, no blame shifting. You're saying the same thing God says about it. One of the most familiar verses to us about confession as believers is 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. 1 John 1, 9, John writes, If we homilegeo, our sins, if we confess our sins, say the same thing God says about it, He, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. As a father, it's this fatherly cleansing and forgiveness so that we maintain our joy of walking with him. 
True repentance includes that confession. And fourthly, true repentance includes choice. Choice. There is this willful resolve to not repeat the sin. I love Proverbs 28, verse 13. Great promise there. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. And that doesn't mean financial prosperity. It means soul prosperity. You're you're not going to do well in your life when you conceal. But he who confesses, it's a Hebrew term there in the Old Testament, but it captures the same idea. He who truly confesses and forsakes finds compassion. So true repentance includes this choice of change. That's why Christ said if you repent, Matthew 3.8, he says, therefore bring forth the fruit of repentance. Make it evident. So we start by being honest about our lives and we evaluate it. Not some sort of morbid introspection, but we recognize here's where I struggle. I admit it. And go before the Lord and renounce it, seriously renounce it. I'm going to take this seriously. And I resolve to continue taking it seriously and to fight this sin. And if you find yourself in moments of weakness that you fail, you repent. True repentance. And that leads to the next important element in this pursuit of personal holiness. Another key here is number five, replace. Replace. You see, we can't just repent. That's the putting off of what's wrong. If that's all we do, just stop doing what's wrong, we really won't experience lasting change that is characterized by godliness. For lasting change, we must put off what is wrong and we must put on what is right. In other words, there must be this dehabituation, but along with that, a rehabituation. Now, replacement is taught frequently in Scripture. I'll just give you a few. In the Old Testament, you see it in Psalm 1. We're very familiar with Psalm 1. There it talks about the blessed man. What made him blessed? What what made him from an observer, being honest, looking at this individual, what, what made him so blessed? Well, it says he puts off, he rejects the counsel of the world, but then he puts something on in his place. He delights in the law of the Lord. There's the positive side. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, very clear there. God says, cease to do evil, there's the put off, but learn to do good. There's the, the other side, replacement. In the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 21 and 22. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22. Here's the put off. It's in that passage. Abstain from every form of evil, but there's a positive side. Hold fast to that which is good. James chapter 4, verse 7, familiar words to us. We're told there that if we resist the devil, there's the, there's the negative side, the put-off side. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. But there's a positive side It tells us what to do first. Submit to God. Both are necessary. I think Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 32, it's a longer section. I won't read it, but I'll just summarize it for you. You find this put-off and put-on motif clearly in Ephesians 4. When we came to Christ, we put off the old self and we put on the new self. But that began a life then of putting off the deeds associated with the old self, but putting on the deeds associated with what it means to be a follower of Christ. It even brings out one example there, falsehood. We put off falsehood and we put on speaking truth. 
Both are necessary. He even mentions a thief there. We put off stealing, but we put on something in its place, working and giving. Just because a thief stops stealing, that doesn't mean he's not a thief anymore. He just is a thief that's not stealing anything. But when a thief stops stealing and puts on working, and then out of what he has and makes, he puts on a habit of giving to others, he has put on the opposite of what he put off. And that's the key. That's the key to building new habits over time. It's we put on the opposite of whatever it is that we're putting off. And along the way to help this rehabituation, it will definitely be necessary at times to make changes, even in our environment, that will help this. We have to not go to some places. We have to not be around some people. We have to not look at certain things and so forth. That's Romans 13 verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. You can't make provision for fleshliness and expect to consistently have victory over it. So that's a very important key replacement. And sometimes this sixth key is needed. Number six, reveal. Reveal. Sometimes. Now, Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.13 something interesting that All the temptations we face, it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, are common to man. We're all facing similar temptations in some way. And yet, as I've said, if we practice that first key of recognizing and we're alert, we will recognize that, yes, we also have unique struggles. It might be a struggle that another person doesn't have. Like what? It could be the sin of anger the sin of impatience, the sin of anxiety, doubt, gossip, pornography, gluttony, fear of man, caring too much about what people think of you. I could go on. In the pursuit of victory over clinging sins like these, it may be helpful and even necessary in some situations to reveal, to share your struggle with a godly friend that you trust. I'm not saying that we're going to have a service and one by one you need to stand up and publicly tell everybody what you struggle with. That's not going to happen. But it can be necessary for you as an individual to bring the fiercest battle that you face into the light. Why? So that other brothers men, or ladies, other sisters, can go to battle with you through prayer, through encouragement, through accountability. Listen, we find this captured in Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2. Galatians 6, 1 and 2, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, doesn't mean perfect, but you who are seeking to follow Christ and you understand how this dynamic of temptation works, you've learned that, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. That bearing of burden is in the context of what it said in verse 1, of the struggle with sin, the battle against temptation. 
We're called upon the body of Christ to help one another with this. So at times, in certain situations, it might be necessary for you to reveal to someone else, I need help in this. Number seven, certainly for all of us, rest. Rest. On one hand, we have work to do in this battle. I've tried to paint the reality of that picture as best I can. We, we certainly must recognize what it is we struggle and renounce the sin that's the source of that struggle and resolve to exercise self-control. But on the other hand, this work is a work we cannot do in our own strength. Regardless of who you are, on your own, you lack the resolve required to do what Ephesians 4.1 says, to walk consistently in a manner worthy of the Lord. We heard that earlier from Psalms. Unless the Lord builds the house, you labor in vain. So yes, we depend on God's grace to enable us and we rest in that, the help that He gives, and He does promise help to His children. I mean, God tells us the direction to walk. He points it out for us, but He doesn't just drop us and leave us. He actually carries us. He gives us His Word to guide us, and He gives us His Spirit to fill us and to lead us and to strengthen us. So rest in that knowledge that Christ loves you if you're one of His followers. Rest in the reality that He has totally accepted you. Rest in the reality that all your sins are covered by His atoning death on the cross, rest in the fact that He promises to help you. Let me remind you of some of His promises, like Hebrews 13, verse 5. Hebrews 13, 5, God says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Hebrews 4, verse 16, this promise about our great high priest in Hebrews 4, 16, we're promised that we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace where Jesus is so that we may receive mercy in the times of failure, in other words, and grace to help in the times of need. I referenced 1 Corinthians 10.13 earlier. Let me read the rest of it. I said that 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that we, we have temptations that are common to man in some way, but here's the rest of it. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. We can practice these keys and experience consistent victory. There's another way to say this rest, this last key. As you pursue personal holiness, let me say it in a more poetic way, but also a biblical way, you need to keep your eyes on Jesus. Not yourself in some sort of introspection that's morbid and that's going to depress you. Don't just look at others, that can depress you as well, but This is Hebrews 12, verse 2. Hebrews 12, verse 2, the author says, but we're fixing our eyes on Jesus. And that phrase, fixing our eyes, means inherently that there is a a change of look. If you're fixing your eyes on something, it's understood that you're no longer fixing your eyes on something else. You look away from that and you look to somewhere else. And the somewhere else is the Lord. We are to turn our eyes away from all other things and fix our eyes exclusively on Christ. And he's in heaven, 
Jesus in bodily, glorified bodily form in heaven right now at the right hand of majesty on high. And from that place in heaven, he assures his followers of his help, his divine assistance in this race that God has sovereignly set each one of us on. From his place of power on high, he he gives grace and mercy to help in time of need. He's the high priest who loves us. He cares for us. Scripture even says that there at the throne of grace, he is praying for you. What a thought. And what a source of encouragement if we fix our eyes on Jesus and rest in his love and care for us. We are even more free to live out the other keys. Well, in all that I've said today, here's one conclusion you should reach. Well, this is nothing new. Good. There is no new way to deal with sin. The keys outlined here will always be God's way. So keep doing what's always been right to do. Keep alert to the sin that can cling to you. If you find one that's more besetting, then genuinely renounce it. Take it seriously and recommit to the resolve necessary to exercise self-control. And if there's failure, repent. And always be replacing what is wrong, the wrong thinking and wrong behavior with biblical thinking and biblical behavior so that you make new habits. If you find that you need this, then reveal your struggle to trusted believers who can pray with you and for you. And along the way, rest in the gospel Rest in what, who Christ is and what he has done. Rest in the knowledge that you are far more accepted by him than you think you are and far more forgiven than you think you are. You're going to have to repeat these things. And it's going to bring weariness. Why do you think Paul, God through Paul tells us something like this, the need for perseverance in Galatians 6, 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. You see, the bottom line is that we want to be able to get to the end of our lives, and we want to be able to say what Paul said at the end of his life. 2 Timothy 4, 7, Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. I'm telling you today, men, men, let's commit to running well. Let's commit to running well all the way to the end. It's what your families need from you. It's what the Lord demands. It's what this church needs. And yes, it's going to require a lot of prayer on your, ha- your behalf. That's a very important element in spiritual pr- warfare. Ephesians 6.10 says, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might, not your own. So plead with the Lord. Plead with the Lord that by His Spirit, that, that He'll help you come to despise your sin, to hate it the way He does. Pray that you'll truly mourn its presence in your life. Pray that pray that you'll have the ability to make that renouncement, to renounce the sin that easily clings to you, whether it's lust, impatience, or a lack of graciousness and kindness toward others around you, those closest to you. 
laziness and spiritual things, fear, those battles are won by his strength. So pray daily and confidently for that kind of self-control. I found this great statement by Aaron Menikoff in a, a book about the heart of man. And if I remember right, our elders went through this, but he makes this sobering comment that the bottom line for anyone is that self-control could be lacking because prayer is lacking. It's a book called Character Matters. That's the name of it. Character Matters, about the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. That's what it was. Self-control could be lacking, he says, because prayer is lacking. And God is going to help you, but let me just remind you of one of the things he uses to help you. Trials. That's a help from the Lord, you see. You see, it's the struggles, the difficulty that helps us learn some very important life lessons like, are we willing to obey even when we don't feel like it? He uses trials to expose us and convict us and to teach us that from time to time, because of his love for his, he will, so to speak, sort of withdraw his hand, not from a salvation standpoint, but sort of withdraw his hand to see what we do so that we see what we do. And we learn a lot from that. In fact, the end result is that we learn more about what personal holiness then requires. And if we learn that, that means we're going to become even more useful to the Lord. And it also is going to mean that we are going to become even more unusually dangerous to the world and Satan. Because we're obeying whether we feel like it or not. We keep on praying even though it feels dry and we wonder if our petitions are even getting past the ceiling. We, we become more useful because we, we start seeking the good of others even though there's no advantage to us at all. That's true fruit bearing. Again, not to earn God's acceptance. If you've come to Christ to save you from your sin... He can't be any more for you than he already is. So let's run the race well. Let's finish well. And let's keep our eyes on Jesus. And we're even going to do that this morning as we conclude our service by observing the Lord's table, remembering Christ, remembering the cross that makes all this possible. Let's bow our heads. Father, we come recommitting ourselves afresh and anew to pursuing Holiness, I pray for the fathers here, the husbands here, the young men here today, that they will get a glimpse of this, a vision of this, and a desire and a passion for personal holiness and being godly men. We need your strength, Lord. We know it's not to get you to love us or to accept us. We just want to run the race well to bring you glory, to bear gospel fruit. We know it's all as a result of what you've already done for us on the cross and through the resurrection from the dead and which showed us your victory over sin and death, we're, we're recalling it this morning that you, the Lord Jesus, purposely spilled your own blood so that we could die to sin and live to righteousness. So we fix our hearts on Jesus now and on the cross May it be a blessing and encouragement to us. In our Savior's name, amen.